Well, grace, mercy, and peace to you from our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Taxes, like most things, have an interesting history when you start to dig into them. The first recorded taxes uh, can be found in ancient Egypt about two to 3,000 years before Jesus was born. And taxes, of course, have taken on different forms and have been enacted in different ways to varying degrees of success throughout history. Our own country had its origins, as you must know, in, in a tax dispute. So that's an interesting bit. And today, of course, all of us do pay some form of taxes. Uh, sometimes very often we pay federal tax, sales, property, state even a tax on every gallon of gasoline. It's like that saying that's well known by Benjamin Franklin. In this world, there are only two certain things, death and taxes. You got it. Well, most people today have somewhat of a negative connotation towards taxation. Some today in the United States say that our federal tax code is, is just too complicated to even begin to understand. And there might be some data that supports this. For instance, uh, our Bibles. Uh, the Bible, if you were to count up all the words, depending on the, the English translation you're using, has roughly 750,000 words in it. Three quarters of a million words. That's a lot. It's a big book. Uh, the English language, if you were to take a Merriam-Webster's Webster, dictionary and count up all the words in that, you'd be at about a million words. Well, in our federal tax code, there are 3.8 million words. So I guess good luck understanding that. Well, you can see why many people today have a negative feeling towards taxes. And it's interesting. In Jesus' day, those same negative feelings, of course, existed, but for different reasons. The people in Jesus' day, unlike us today, they didn't elect their government officials, nor did they have any say in their tax system. Taxes were simply imposed on them by the Roman Empire in that time, and also by their local authorities. They paid whatever they were required to pay, plus more, because that's how tax collectors earned a living back then. Tax collectors collected whatever they were required to levy by the government, and then anything more that they could collect, well, that was what they got to take home with them. So as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of tension between the people and the government, especially when it came to taxes. And this was especially true in the region of Judea, which already had a deep, ongoing, and uneasy relationship between the Jewish uh, people and the Roman Empire. Taxation was just one of the many points of conflict that existed between them. And so when it came to taxation, if you were a faithful Jew, if you were a devoted Jewish person, you would oppose paying taxes to the Romans. Now, you still had to. They were the ones who had the military presence, and you didn't. But you wouldn't do so willingly, and you, and you certainly would try to probably make it as, as difficult as possible for them. All this then explains why it was the issue of taxation that was used when, as Matthew writes, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They were going to do this by asking Jesus about the hot-button topic of taxes. As you recall, this was happening during Holy Week. 
The religious leaders wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. More than that, they really wanted him to say something either treasonous or blasphemous. Either one would have made them happy. If Jesus opposed paying taxes to Caesar, well, then they could hand him over to the Romans as some kind of upstart rebel. If Jesus was in favor of paying taxes to Caesar, well, then they could, hand, they could uh, uh, paint him as some kind of traitor to his own people and to the uh, Jewish religion. In fact, so determined were the Pharisees to trap Jesus in his own words that they were willing to form an alliance with their political enemies, the Herodians. The Herodians were the ones who supported Herod and his descendants as the rightful ruling party in the region. And the fact that the Pharisees were willing to work with them, whom they hated, should tell us something right there about the lengths they were willing to go to attack Jesus. And they come to Jesus, and they start out so falsely sweet. Their words are just dripping. They sound like children coming to their parents, trying to get something out of their parents. They said, teacher, we know that you are true, and and you teach the, the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But of course, Jesus isn't fooled. And he calls them hypocrites because he knew that if the tables were turned and they were being asked this question, they would refuse to answer themselves. But, but Jesus, he doesn't get mad. He doesn't get riled up about it. No, he simply says, show me the coin for the tax. And then so they bring him a denarius, and Jesus asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, of course, Caesar's, to which Jesus says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And Matthew writes, when they heard it, they marveled, and they went away and left him. That's all they could do after this master class performance by Jesus. And so over the years, a lot of words have been spoken and a lot of ink spilled about what Jesus says there, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. And truly, it is profound. It, it's the thing that often stands out when we first hear this passage again. And, and it was the answer to their initial question too, right? Uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so people go on to talk about the proper distinction between our secular obligations and our religious obligations. Lutheran theology over the centuries actually add a lot to these discussions because in Lutheran theology, we have our uh, theology of, of the two kingdoms or the two realms as it's known, explaining that Christians should be active and engaged in the same ways that God is active and engaged in this world. And so you have God's right-hand realm, which is God's church, and you have God's left-hand realm, which are God's servants in the government. Both of them, this is important, belong to God. And both are ways that God interacts in this world. So places in scripture like Romans 13 states that all authorities are instituted by God, that we are to submit to our governing authorities so long as they do not lead us against God's word. And we are to pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
We, as Christians, simply put, are obligated to behave appropriately in this world in both the right-hand and the left-hand realm because both are God's. But as important as that topic is, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, that's actually not going to be the main point of my sermon because it's not the main point of Jesus either. Jesus answers the question since they asked it, and while he, while he did so, he disarmed the trap that the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to set. They were trying to nail him down with his own words. But the most important point Jesus makes, and what I find to be a point that doesn't get talked about all that often, is when he says, render to God what is God's. Caesar we get. We get that we are to pay taxes, be good citizens, live lawfully. We, we generally know what it is we owe our governing authorities. But what does Jesus mean when he says, render to God the things that are God's? After all, what is God's? And what is it that we are supposed to render to him? Now, Jesus doesn't mean by saying that, that somehow what belongs to Caesar or the government and what belongs to God, that, that somehow Caesar owns something that God ultimately doesn't own. That, like that's separate and distinct. That's not the case at all. No, like we said, both the right hand and the left hand realm belong to God. Both the church and the state are God's. What Jesus is getting at, after, however, is a line of reasoning arguing from lesser to greater. In other words, just as we all know that we must pay taxes and revenue and respect and honor to our governing authorities, even more so then do we owe to God what is rightfully his. But the question still remains, what is that? Well, it's helpful to keep in mind the parable that we heard only two weeks ago, the the parable that Jesus just spoke to the, the Pharisees in this Holy Week. It's the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. The tenants in that parable tried to live and act like the master's vineyard was actually theirs. And so they rebelled against the master. They ended up even killing his son. But the vineyard is always the master's. And in the same way, this world and everything in it is God's. Instead of us asking, well, what is God's? A better question would be to ask, what isn't God's? Because the answer is nothing. Everything belongs to the creator. And God isn't simply owed 10% of what we have, or 15%, or 20%, or even 50%. No, God is owed 100% because everything already belongs to him. Your world, your life, your money, your possessions, your time, it all belongs to God. And so we see that when Jesus says, render to God, the things that are God's, we realize how profound a statement that actually is. Now, does Jesus mean that we need to sell everything we have, give it all away, and then run off and join a monastery somewhere? Is that the expectation? No, not at all. In our lives, what we find 
is that God gives us what he gives us and he places us where he places us in specific places and circumstances, particularly with our family and with our neighbors and with our co-workers or fellow students, people, specific people that God intends for us to love and to serve right where we are. And we do that by stewarding, by managing the things that belong to God, our money, our possessions, our time, because God has given them to us in order to accomplish that which he wants us to accomplish. That is how we render to God what is God's. He intends for us to steward, manage these things faithfully so that we can make a faithful return on his investment. And that's not in a matter of dollars and cents, but rather in faith and love and service. Another way that we render to God what is God's, which ties in with this idea of stewardship, is rendering to God the worship and the praise that he is owed as our God. And so this is the first commandment, isn't it? The commandment, you shall have no other gods. Our small catechism explains that as we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. It also has to do with the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, which again means we should fear, love, and trust in God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold his word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. In other words, what that's telling us is that our worship to God, what we owe him, starts with what God has already given to us in his word and sacraments. God delivers everything that we need right here. So in our faithful lives, we do worship God regularly in church. We do open our Bibles during the week. We do make sure that we are receiving the Lord's Supper regularly. We do enjoy the presence of God as we find him here in worship and in his word and in his sacraments, as well as in the fellowship that we share as the body of Christ. You see, God has blessed us both physically and spiritually with everything we could possibly need to live faithful and fruitful lives. But of course, we need to take a moment of honest reflection. And let me ask you, how often do you find yourself not treating God's gift of word and sacrament as holy as you should? Or not hearing or receiving his gifts as gladly as you should? Or how often do you fail to be a faithful steward of everything God has entrusted to you and to your care? How often do we find ourselves living as if we are the owners and God is not? All of us, we so often fail to appreciate the amazing presence of God among us, and we so often fail to appreciate all of God's merciful and gracious gifts that he gives us each and every day. And that day in Jerusalem, there was the full presence of God, God in human flesh standing right in front of them. The greatest gift that this world has ever known and received right there to touch and to hear and to see. And all the Pharisees could do was try to figure out a way to trap and kill him. Now, let me be clear, the Pharisees' sin is not our sin. We weren't the ones who historically rejected and killed Jesus. Yet, 
It is still our sin, the sin that we find ourselves committing every single day that caused Jesus to go to Jerusalem in the first place. It is still for our sin that Jesus offered full payment by laying down his perfect life. It is still for our sin that Jesus was willing to endure the attacks by the Pharisees and the Herodians as they tried to nail him down in his words. And although they weren't successful that day, as we heard in our gospel reading, it is still for our sin that Jesus did allow himself to be nailed down on Friday morning as they successfully condemned him to death on a cross. Jesus did all this for your sin for my sin, for the sin of the whole world. All of our failures to live faithful lives, all of our failures to render to God the things that are God's. But there's one more thing that we haven't discussed yet, that God desires us to render to him. And this one is beyond all understanding because truthfully it is beyond all human reasonableness. It is simply out of God's amazing and relentless mercy, grace, and love for us that because of the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ, God also desires that we render to him all of our sins. And although our sin does not belong to God, like everything else in all creation, our sin belongs to us, God has still chosen to take all of our sin upon himself at the cross so that he could die for it. Second Corinthians reminds us, for our sake God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in exchange, we might become the righteousness of God. John the Baptist had come proclaiming, repent of your sins. In other words, render your sins to God, for the reign and rule of heaven is about to arrive. And then Jesus did arrive, and he proclaimed to the people, repent of your sins, render your sins to God, for the reign and rule of heaven is now here and stands right here before you. Jesus came to take all of our sins upon himself so that he could go to the cross with them. He became sin for us. He nailed them to the cross and then he died for them and buried them, buried, was buried with them so that on Easter morning he could leave them behind as he rose from the grave. And so today and every day, Jesus calls us to live in daily repentance of our sins so that every day we may live in his daily gift of forgiveness. Render to God what is God's. Render to him everything in our lives, but also render to him our sins, our failings, our shortcomings, which he has chosen to make his own so that he might turn, forgive you, and make you his own. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the Herodians that day, whose image, whose image was on that coin? And of course it was Caesar's. But I like to think of Jesus looking around the crowd that day, even looking down from the cross on Good Friday, looking on us today, and Jesus sees another image. 
the image of God, which he has placed upon all of us. When the Father looks at us because of what Christ has done, he sees his Son and he sees us as his sons and daughters who have been made and remade in his image. We are the ones who have been given this extraordinary gift of forgiveness and eternal life from God, not because we deserve it, but because God has chosen to give it to us as a free gift. And so in response to that, we can't help but live our lives in love and service to him, as well as in love and service to those who are around us, who are also made in the image of God. But we don't render our lives to God in order to earn his love. No, we render our lives to God because he has first loved us. I'd like to close my sermon today with a prayer. It's actually going to be the first two stanzas of our closing hymn that we'll just speak together. So I'd like to invite you to pray this prayer with me now. Lord of glory, you have bought us with your lifeblood as the price, never grudging for the lost ones that tremendous sacrifice, and with that have freely given Blessings countless as the sand to the unthankful and the evil with your own unsparing hand. Grant us hearts, dear Lord, to give you gladly, freely of your own. With the sunshine of your goodness, melt our thankless hearts of stone till our cold and selfish natures, warmed by you, at length believe that more happy and more blessed it is to give than to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard you and your hearts in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.